So this month of May in the Buddhist tradition is the month of Vesak, which is the considered the most important holiday for the Buddhist faith. And it celebrates the Buddha's birthday, the Buddha's enlightenment, and the Buddha's death. They kind of do a package, you know, get it all in on one, on one holiday. And it's, it's interesting how these three different events really would fit together. But what's, what's really revealing as you reflect on it is that they each carry the exact same message, which is that we each within us have a potential to be profoundly happy, to awaken a very deep wisdom, and to truly touch freedom. That that is our potential. And so it's some of the time you'll listen to these talks and I'll talk about trance, that the understanding is that we are conditioned to spend a lot of time in a trance where we forget that potential. And so this holiday is really... Um, a time to dedicate ourselves to remembering that this isn't just for a Buddha back 2,500 years ago. This is the potential in this lifetime, this freedom. And I've shared a number of times one of my favorite metaphors that is actually a story of, of, of a large statue of a Buddha in Thailand. And quite briefly, this statue for for centuries was very, very popular but not very attractive. It was plaster and clay, um, huge, huge statue. But it survived army, invading armies and different weather and governments. And I think it was about eight years ago, uh, it was a, there was a real dry spill and these cracks appeared in the statue. And as some of you will remember, one monk put a flashlight into the cracks and what shone back was gold. And what they discovered was under this plaster and clay was the largest all-gold statue in, in Southeast Asia. So now they've taken the covering off and that's what people are um, enjoying. But what I like about this story and what the monks believed was that the statue had been covered over to protect it through hard times and that's what we do that we cover ourselves you know with our defenses and our strategies for proving ourselves and making it in the world but our personas we cover ourselves and that we cover over our innate purity and the suffering is that we forget who we are we forget that gold and we become identified with the personalities and identified with the defenses and the strategies and so on. And so the whole of the Buddhist teachings are about remembering this radiance, this presence, this heart that is really our true nature. And you'll read um, in many of the writings that it starts, O nobly born. And it's really, that's addressing each of us, O nobly born. So I'd like tonight to just honor the season of Visak with a little bit of a reflection on the story of the Buddha's life in a very contemporary way because there's not anything that we'll touch on tonight that we can't just, and I'd invite you each to do this, is to say, okay, what does this really mean in my life? 
What does this mean in my life and in my practice? I remember one of the first oh, Buddhist retreats I went to, the story, one of the opening stories was of a woman who wanted to go and see a guru. And she told her travel agent that she had to go to Asia to see this guru. And she was an older woman. And the travel agent first tried to dissuade her and say, hey, why don't you uh, go to Miami like you normally do? But no, no, I want to go see the guru. And so she made all the arrangements. And this woman flew to India. And and when when people heard she was going to see this particular guru, they said, but you know, you can only say three words because that was the arrangement with this particular guru. And she said, I know, I know, but i got to see him. So she you know, flies to India, and then she takes the train across India, and again she meets people that are disciples, and they say, you know, it's only three words that you, you've come a long way. I know, I know. Takes the jeep into the mountains, and finally gets to the encampment where the guru kind of holds court, and stands in a long line, and again she's, she's reminded before she gets in by one of the... Uh, people that's, you know, kind of serving the guru that she can only speak three words. But finally it's her turn and he's there in this tent with his saffron robes and his wispy beard and she looks at him in the eye and says, Sheldon, come home. And I think when I first heard the story, the purpose in it was to say that this practice that we're doing, it may come in wrappings sometime that seem exotic and from another um, culture or whatever, but the truths, what can be realized, are within this very heart and mind, right here in this moment, this year, this place, it's not somewhere else. So the motifs, and, and what I love about the story of the Buddha's life is the motifs are so alive and so relevant. So, but we start with the birth of the Buddha, and of course it's, some of it's, it's elaborate with symbolism, but basically his mother, Queen Mahamaya, found an Ashok tree, a tree. She was traveling when she was pregnant and she, get, she kind of leaned against it and grabbed a branch of it for support when she was giving birth. And, then, and the Buddha, of course, then Siddhartha Gautama, uh, was born and the first thing he did as this newborn was stand up and walk. You know, some of this stuff's a little bit of a stretch, but anyway, so he, he took seven steps and he's walking and he took these steps by walking on lotus flowers. So he took seven steps on these lotus flowers and seven steps back. And the symbolism, flowers play a conspicuous role in many Buddhist myths and it signals the capacity for awakening by stepping on the lotus. So we're born with this natural nobility out of the earth, the stars, and this potential to blossom in wondrous ways. And in the same way, births all over the world, there is some sense of this amazing potential and some delight in that. So again, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, speaking to each of us, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind, shining and deathless. So we begin with a birth that really is the potential for all of us, not just 
in our bodily birth, but in any moment, because we get reborn moment by moment, to remember our true nature. He was named Siddhartha, as I mentioned, which means one who has brought about all good, and Gautama's the family name. And a few days after his birth, a holy man, a hermit, visited and proclaimed that the young prince would grow to be an exceptional adult. Either he'd, he'd be the greatest king ever known or a great spiritual leader. And his father, King Suddhodana, said to himself, okay, he's going to be a king first. If he wants to be a spiritual leader later in his life, but, you know, king first. And to ensure that, he created these pleasure palaces that would, in every way possible, um, keep his son attached to this world. And there were two aspects to the pleasure palaces. Within them, there was as much pleasure as possible. In other words, beautiful music and beautiful women and dancing and so on. But also, they kept him in. He wasn't allowed to go out to where there would be difficulties and the harsh realities. So these pleasure palaces, they're kind of archetypal understanding that I have is it's like the structure of our ego or our cultural ego where we try to focus on what will give us pleasure, focus on comfort, focus, focus on what will make life easier and there's an attempt to resist or avoid the unpleasant. So there's this willful kind of controlling of experience, managing our experience and most basically not to face mortality. And this is the trance. So his father created a trance, in a way, for him. And so for us, it gets this kind of consensus that we're going after pleasant, that we're avoiding unpleasant, that we're on our way to something else, chasing after happiness, um, is part of the, the cultural trance that we all get born into. And so what happened to Siddhartha was that there was this inevitable breakthrough into the palaces of reality for him and it came in the form that he actually went on outings with his charioteer, Chana, and they weren't really well supervised because it turned out that on those outings he encountered what have been described as four heavenly messengers. And the messengers were an old man, a sick person, a corpse, and then a holy man who was a renunciate seeking happiness. And for Gautama, after being inside the pleasure palaces, this was disillusionment. This was seeing, oh, okay, people get old, they get sick, and they die. And for us, we have the same kind of disillusionment. We talked last week, um, the story of Nachiketa, that we get disillusioned, and that's when we start seeking and it breaks through our personal life in when we fail in some way, when there's sickness, when there's great loss. For some it's when we're older, but for some at a very early stage, there's a recognition that no matter how much we try to control things, no matter how much, life is absolutely unpredictable and that stuff happens that our ego doesn't want to have happen. So this is reality. It's not bad things. It's simply the reality of life passing and the pain of loss. So this is the first noble truth, actually, that there's a fundamental dissatisfaction, uncontrollability to life, and that things keep changing, and that 
there's an unease in the midst of that. And we can see it globally, the great sorrow for more natural disasters, the degradation of the earth and our vital systems. So the Buddha got exposed to this through the four heavenly messengers and this is what motivated him to seek whatever it was that can give us freedom in the midst of reality. That was his search. What is it, if reality is as it is, if we really face it, that this life is brief, that there's inevitably going to be loss, that these bodies are going to go, that we lose everything we love, how do we find freedom and happiness in the midst? That was his, his search. And the beginning of his search, the first six years, was his answer to that question is, okay, I'm going to like really starve my senses and really break all my attachments to pleasure because that's the way I'll be free. So he tried to control his sense desires and he, he did all these austerities that left him very, very skinny and sick. So that, that's one route, is really striving and depriving ourselves. Garrison Keillor put it this way. He said, my ancestors were Puritans from England. They arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English <laughs> law at that time. So how do we, if, if the Buddha basically left his pleasure palaces and he actually left his wife and his son and his way of responding to this unpredictable world where it's guaranteed, where loss is guaranteed, his response was self-deprivation and striving and renouncing sense pleasure. What do we do when we start getting that, hey, it's kind of shaky and stuff happens and we need to do something about that? What do we do? And for many of us, our reaction is we go on a kind of uh, course of self-improvement. We figure, I'm going to polish this self. I'm going to get a better personality. I'm going to do more good in the world. Or I'm going to just become more intelligent. Or I'm going to get this body together and diet. Or I'm going to do a lot of therapy. But in some way, our response to this uncertainty, our, our response to reality breaking through, is I'm going to get myself together. And it's often sincere, but it's often misguided striving. And we try to latch on, even with meditation, this sense of now I'm doing something good for myself. I'm a meditator, you know. So the Buddha did this kind of um, striving for six years. And for many of us, it's decades and decades and decades that we have a sense of, in some way, sometimes it's punitive towards ourselves, but sometimes it's just... I'm going to improve myself. The undercurrent of this striving is a judgment that there's something wrong with us that we have to change. The undercurrent is that there's something unworthy or insufficient and we are not enough. And I I speak of this a lot because it's the flavor of trance that I see most people caught in. Um, that, we're, that we're watching ourselves to see if we're improving all the time. One of my favorite little stories is of a group of children lined up in the cafeteria of a Catholic elementary school for lunch. 
And at the head of the table, there's this large pile of apples, and a nun made a note posted on the table by the apples and said, take only one, God is watching. And if you move further along the lunch line, at the other end of the table, there's this large pile of chocolate chip cookies, and the child had written a note, take all you want, God's watching the apples, you know. <laughs> so part of our striving is looking good to others, looking good to our own superego, but we spend a lot of time, again, the Buddha spent six years, we spent a lot of years caught in trying to feel better about ourselves, trying to prove ourselves. I sometimes think of Lily Tomlin's line, as long as we're in the rat race, we're still a rat. And that we're, we keep on trying hard to be different, to be better, but the very nature of that striving keeps us locked in the sense of being insufficient. The very striving to be better and different keeps us, in some way reinforces the message of you're not okay as you are. So the Buddhist strove, and it's the Sisyphus kind of pushing the boulder and kept on, you know, did the, these did these austerities, but then he had a a revelation. And here he is, he's 35 years old, he's near death from treating his body so harshly, and something in him said, there must be a better way. And I think sometimes we have that too, when we realize how hard we push to be different and better, and something in us gets, well, there's got to be some different way of relating to this all. And when he said that, that it was kind of a a prayer and an inquiry, he had a memory that came up of being a young child and it was the time of spring plowing and each year at the palace that his father, the the king, would take him and his mother and and, and all all out to this great field and they'd watch the plowing going on and he, he would sit under this rose apple tree and you'll notice trees keep coming up on every major... Uh, every juncture of the story of the Buddha. So he's sitting under a rose apple tree and watching the, the earth being torn up in the plowing and feeling this enormous compassion for these insects whose habitats are being destroyed. And at the same time, sensing the beauty of the day. And, and this very joy is when we include the joys and the sorrows, this very joyful, open quality of um, heart and mind. And in that, he entered what's called the first jhana, which is when the mind becomes initially absorbed and there's a real quality of settling, a quality of peace, a quality of really um, kind of a, a calm and a serenity that arises in the first jhana, happy and peaceful. And he had this profound realization in remembering this that freedom is an innate quality of being available to a child and that the way to freedom is not being at war with the self, not pushing the boulder up the hill, but a deeply relaxed, open, wakeful presence. So this was his realization after the six years of austerity. Seeking freedom was a good idea, but his way of seeking, striving, wasn't it. In fact, It was the absence of striving that liberated. So for us, again, as I mentioned, many of us have an intuition that the way we struggle or strive or work so hard might temporarily make us feel better about ourselves, but it doesn't really allow us to come home. It doesn't really free us. 
And there's that inquiry of, what if you really relaxed? I mean, in any moment, what if we really relaxed? Who are you when you really relax? When you stop the doing, stop being on your way anywhere? So just in this moment, if there's no striving, not trying to do anything, who are you? So this is the Buddha's experience, a sense of it's not about striving, it's about presence but not about striving. So when he realized that, he shifted gears, he stopped depriving himself, he, one of the beautiful stories is he takes in nourishment and a lovely young woman feeds him and he actually receives care, which is very much a part of the spiritual path too, that we receive care. And he regained his physical strength and then he found another tree, which is the Bodhi tree. He's now in Bodh Gaya and it's late spring because now we're getting to this next part of the holiday, which is his enlightenment. So here he is, he's no longer depriving himself or striving and he feels just this very single-minded dedication to being awake. Not striving, but really coming home to full realization, to being fully awake. And so again, this time he is again by a tree and he resolves to become still, to stop doing, and to open to the mystery of his own heart and mind. Coming to the Bodhi tree really was a pause. So I'm purposely kind of slowing down here because intrinsic to this Visak is this commitment to pausing to find out really who we are, the nature of reality. So the Buddha paused at the Bodhi tree. And I've already mentioned that he was born by a tree and he had that experience at the rose apple tree. And the symbolism of the world tree is that it stands at the center of the cosmos and it's a common feature in many myths of salvation and freedom. So I find that interesting. It's the place where divine energies pour into the world and where, the hu- where humans encounter the absolute, pure awareness. And it, according to a Christian legend, the cross of Jesus stood on the same spot as the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. So this is, again, he's come to rest kind of at the center of the universe, in this mythological center, the still point the place of total balance. We can see all the elements of our practice and path in the process of the Buddha's enlightenment. And I named these same elements last week in the story of Nachiketa, so I hope you are sensing the parallels. That the beginning for the Buddha was, was really a very kind and forgiving attitude towards conditioning, self-compassion, that rather than being punitive to really nourish and nurture and understand the conditioning to go for pleasure and avoid pain, it's just part of our human um, way we're designed. So we begin the path with a real quality of heart, of of compassion towards this, this conditioning that's right here. And I sometimes sense the, the gesture of putting our hand on our heart as one of just acknowledging a quality of kindness 
of forgiveness towards what's right here. Not forgiveness like I've sinned and been bad, but forgiveness as in a willingness to put down any ways that we've armored against ourselves, anything we're holding against ourselves. So the path begins with this quality of kindness. And then it continues with, I last we called the inner fire, you remember that? This, this resolution, this commitment to awakening. And that in us which really, truly wants to be free and awake more than being right or comfortable. And I think of it as it's the voice of awareness that's calling us home. That there is within us this longing because we want to be home. We really want to rest in, in the awakeness and love that's our true nature. So this inner fire has us pay attention more deeply. It's this inner fire that says, pause, stop. Don't keep tumbling into the future with this idea that what you want is down the road. Really pause. I mean, right now. This isn't a talk about doing something next week. Pause, arrive, and really look into our own minds and sense what's true. So there's the kindness towards with the life that's here. There's that inner fire that says, truly, what is reality? What am I? And then the third quality is out of that sincerity, we deepen our attention to what's true right here. So it's not striving, but it's pausing and truly arriving in what's right here. So this is what Gautama did. He sat under the Bodhi tree, he paused, he deepened attention. And what he saw, and the way it's described in the Pali Canon, it's through the four watches of the night, he saw the radical nature of impermanence, how from the smallest speck of dust to the wheeling galaxies, everything is in continual change. Right now, if you just pause and sense inside these bodies, this ever-changing flow of sensation, of feelings, these thoughts that keep coming and going, all that we know and love, the whole conditioned world is destined to be born and die. So he saw this. He saw the first noble truth, that this changing flow is experienced as pleasure, as pain, that there's this tendency to hold on, to push away. And then when we get caught in wanting it different, there's suffering. So sense if you can just, if you pause and feel this changing, moving world that's living within and around you. And what the Buddha saw and what we can see is that any effort to control it or make it different begins to create suffering. It takes us away from that timeless presence that's right here. The Buddha saw how everything is connected, that every part of this world affects every other part. And with that arose not only a deep compassion, 
but also a sense of the timeless awareness that this world arises out of. He saw that this life is a process of letting go. Ajahn Chah says it wonderful. He says, if you let go a little, you get a little peace. You let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. You let go completely and you can discover the timeless peace of an awakened heart. So this is what the Buddha realized, that it's through not resisting, not clinging, that we come to discover this mystery of presence that's our deepest nature. And so it was through the night that he got every challenge hurled at him in the figure of Mara, the god of greed, hatred, and delusion, to try to create a reactivity. And he practiced this non-resisting presence so that whatever came out, the slings and arrows of Mara that came at him, all the different challenges, he, he met them with this awakeness and this kindness. And as it, as it says in the story, they fell to the ground and there was this mound of flower petals. They turned into petals and just mounded, a mound at his feet. So his heart was very awake, his mind was very radiant, but the Buddha was not completely free. Because Mara, as dawn came, issued his final challenge. And some of you might know what the final challenge is, but to me this is probably one of the most powerful and useful parts of the entire myth of the Buddha. At that beginning towards dawn, Mara tries to duel with the Buddha and he basically says, you know, basically says, who are you? Or who do you think you are? That's his challenge. Who do you think you are? He challenges the Buddha with doubt. That's what he challenges him with. And that's where we all, in our deepest suffering, get caught. This doubt about who we are. This doubt that we're okay. This mistrust in our own nature. So, in this part of the story, which to me is um, so powerful, Mara is basically saying, prove yourself. And we feel that all the time, and we go around trying to prove ourselves. And um, the way the Buddha responded was really interesting. Mara said, uh, Mara wanted one of his soldiers to prove he deserved the seat, that the Buddha deserved the seat. But instead of responding and sending out a soldier to prove himself, the Buddha reached out and touched the ground. He touched the earth. And this is one of my favorite icons with his right hand. He, he touched the earth. Instead of trying to prove himself, instead of trying to meditate through it, he connected with something larger. He established his belonging with the earth deity, with Mother Nature, with the whole field of living beings. And at that moment, the earth goddess basically bore witness to the golden Buddha, to his gold, to his beauty, to his goodness, and Mara basically fled. Not for good, but that's okay. But Mara fled and the Buddha was totally free. And so this is the possibility for each of us to pause, to pay deep, deep attention to who we are, and to respond to the doubt by recognizing our belonging to this entire web of life. 
It's really love. It's really realizing our oneness with the whole and trusting who we are. The poet Dana Falds writes a poem called Awakening Now that really has to do with responding to Mara's challenge. Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect and surely I haven't meditated nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep. My prayers are sometimes insincere. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true nature. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your stories of separation and failure. This is the day of your awakening. So here we are in this season of Visak, and this is the time of trusting that possibility that we can be awake, fully awake, right in this moment. We don't have to wait. As the story goes on, in the days following the Buddha's enlightenment, he was clearly bright and shining and a lot, lot of uh, life to him. And people got very drawn to him and they'd approach him and say, well, who are you? Are you a, a saint? Are you, are you a healer? Are you a renunciate? Are you a sage? You know, they'd ask him all these questions. And each time he'd say, no. And his response was, I'm awake. Just that, I'm awake. And it was for the next 45 years that from that realization he realized the, the goal, the radiance of his own being. He taught from that realization. He taught and brought the Dharma to whoever was interested. And so it is that this is the path of a bodhisattva, that there's the realization of truth, of this awareness and heart, and then there's living from it, which it's like, what else is there to do? If you know you belong to all the other beings on this planet and, out and beyond, what is there to do but to be, participate in us waking up together to serve? And so that's what the Bodhisattva did. That's what the Buddha did. And we know it in our own being that when we're not caught in, in fear, when we're not gripped by a sense of, of neediness, um, we naturally respond to the world with a quality of care. The Dalai Lama has many, many times said it's not about being a Buddhist. He says, my religion is kindness. And it just feels so important because it feels like the 45 years that the Buddha walked the earth after his enlightenment, it wasn't be a good person or it wasn't I'm on a mission, I think everybody should be like me, but it was just sensing with compassion that we're in a trance. We spend a lot of time in a trance 
and that there is this possibility within each of us to realize that trance and come home to this radiance and this love and to live from that. The kindness, again, isn't, isn't a virtuous thing like as in good personhood. It just flows. One of my favorite examples of that flowing is uh, Argentino golfer uh, Roberto Di Vancesco. He once won a tournament and after receiving a check and smiling for the cameras, he prepared to leave. He was still relatively new at this and he walked alone into the parking lot. Approached by, he was approached by a young woman who congratulated him and told him that her son was seriously ill and near death. She didn't know she'd pay the doctor's bills and hospital expenses. And he, who was known as a gentleman, was so touched by her story, he took a pen and endorsed the day's winnings to her, pressed it into her hand and said, make some good days for the baby. A couple of weeks later, he's at another country club and one of the officials came over and said, you know, some of the boys in the parking lot at that last tournament told me what happened with that young woman you met. He nodded. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She's a phony. She has no sick baby. She has no children at all. She's fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who's dying, said Roberto? That's right, said the official. Why, that's the best news I've heard all week. (laughs) Barbara Kingsolver writes, Here's what I've decided. The very least you can do in your life is figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope, not admire it from a distance, but live right in it under its roof. What I want is so simple I almost can't say it. Elementary kindness. So this was the example of of the Buddha's life that he lived the teachings of compassion and wisdom And as I I hinted before, Mara came back. It wasn't that Mara disappeared. And I like that. I think that's really... I like that because it's real. It's not like you you wake up and then there's never any conditioning towards greed, hatred, or delusion. It comes back. But his relationship with Mara was what was most telling. That when Mara would appear, he'd invite him to tea. He'd say, Mara would come now and then, and he'd say, I see you, Mara, come to tea. So he wasn't at war with the conditioning. He wasn't at war with this humanness that we all live with. So his death, this is the last part of the, um, of the season's celebration, and it is a celebration. He died in Kusanara from po- food poisoning, and as the story goes, the Buddha was 80, He was traveling with his loyal aide, who was also his cousin, Ananda, and a group of monks. And they were really far from the more settled, civilized areas he usually taught in. So he arrives at this most unglamorous, poor, outlying village, and he knew it was the place he was to die. And Ananda tried to convince him that they should go somewhere um, more, more fine, but it was really in aligned with his life that he wasn't concerned with appearance or external prestige. He wasn't trying to prop up a sense of importance. So right up until the end, he was sharing the Dharma. Even in the last days when he was ill and exhausted, he gave teachings to a passing mendicant from others from the region. 
And the Buddha, one of the last things he said to Ananda was this. He said, you may be thinking, Ananda, that the word of the teacher is now a thing of the past. Now we have no more teacher. But this is not how you should see it. Let the Dhamma and the practices that I have taught you be your teacher when I'm gone. The truths must be living truths, known by direct realization. And the realization of what we are is to be lived for others. This is the holy life, realizing our connectedness, living for the sake of all beings. He took his final resting spot again under a tree, actually under twin sal trees. And that was where he experienced what's called parinibbana. Nibbana is the extinction of all grasping hatred or delusion, any identification with a small self. And parinibbana is when the animation of the earthly plane ceases. So he'd already experienced nibbana, so now he's going beyond the animation of the earthly plane. And these are the words in the Pali Canon. As a flame blown out by the wind goes to rest and cannot be defined, so the enlightened one, freed from selfishness, goes to rest and cannot be defined. Gone beyond all images, gone beyond the power of words. So this is the timeless, luminous awareness that's our very essence. And his death, as with his life, is this celebration of this capacity that's within each of us to be free from grasping and to realize this this timeless essence. So you might just take a moment and, if you will, sense this profound message that lives through the Buddha's birth and his enlightenment and his death. He basically said, you don't have to believe the teachings. He, he basically said, be a light unto thyself. The words, ehi pasiko, come and see, come and see that all that you long for, all that you cherish, all that you can trust is right here now in this very awareness. And if we move from the Buddha to Walt Whitman, I am much larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. The blessing of Visak is realizing the gold, this luminosity, this goodness, And the trance that we're in is that it's not right here. That's a a nutshell summary. We want something that's not right here. And yet the Tibetan Book of the Dead again says, O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the radiant nature of your own heart and mind, shining, and deathless. So here we are together right in this moment. This is our current version of the Bodhi tree. 
because wherever we are is the center of the universe. Let it be real because it is the truth. It's right now. It's no other time. And it's right here. It's no other place. To sense from a deep sincerity that you're pausing, bringing a full attention right here, right now, not in any way resisting this changing swirl of sensation coming and going of sound this movement of life what happens when there's no resisting Can you sense your own presence? The innate wakefulness or luminosity that shines through these bodies and minds. Can you be the silence that's listening? Awake, radiant space. O nobly born, O you of glorious origins, remember your true nature, the great radiant nature of your own heart and mind, shining, deathless. May all beings realize their essence as loving presence. And may our lives express this realization. May we be kind, May we see the goodness in each other. May we be part of the healing of our earth. Namaste.
the teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.